invite you to open your Bibles with me today to Acts chapter 2. It's where we'll start and we will pick and choose from several passages this morning. We've just spent somewhere over the last course of a year studying the Gospel of John. And John stated very clearly for us his purpose in writing that you might believe and by believing and that you might have everlasting life. This Gospel is not just John's Gospel, but we're talking about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And that that is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus told his disciples that when he was gone, they would be able to do greater things than he did. And they certainly did. That, that guy named Peter, who was so fickle and so weak, uh, his first sermon and 3,000 people come to know Christ. I mean, that must have been some sermon. Uh, I'm not, I don't have it. Well, Peter had it. I don't have it, okay? So today we are going to begin our study of Acts. Now, the question is, how did the gospel that was given play out and create this church, which we are now a part of? And Acts lays the foundation for that and tells us how over the course of some just 30 years, really, the gospel goes from, from 11 guys who are pretty weak and a couple of hand, a handful or, full of followers into this thing that spreads throughout the known world at that time and begins to change the face of this world. How does that happen? When you start with fishermen and a tax collector and a couple of guys like that who are all scattered as soon as um, a threat comes, but somehow their lives are changed to the point where all, except the writer of John, his gospel, give their lives in martyrdom for the things of Christ. How does that happen? We're going to see about that in the book of Acts. So let me pray for us today. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, We ask that you would open our eyes to it, that we would begin to see, that we would begin to understand how you called the church to live, not just in the first century, and the things that caused the gospel to spread so quickly, and and, and there to be such a demonstration of the power of the things of, of Christ and of your love and grace then, but also how are we to live today? How are we to put these things to work in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our places of recreation, in our communities, in our city, and in this country? How do we live out the things of the gospel in this world in the same way that they did in the first century so that we can change the world? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how did they do it? And why aren't we doing it? There are two questions there. How did they do it and why aren't we doing it? Well, the first question, how did they do it, will be dealt with over the coming weeks and months as we get through the book of Acts. And we'll do Acts in the same way that we did John. We won't do every verse, but we'll kind of pick and choose as we go through that thing, those things that I think are pertinent to us today, those things that we need to know and we need to chew on and wrestle with in our lives so that we can come to some understanding of how this gospel changed the world and how we're to live because of it in this world. Well, so the short answer to the question is, how did they do it, can be found in Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. This, uh, this passage is not new to us. We've, we've looked at it before, and it is very important. In fact, this was, uh, 
Uh, I'll plug the elders. Um, uh, at the exam, the EPC exam, it was, um, well, you know, what should the church do? And the question, and the answer was, well, we should do this. Let me read it to you. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. This is 46, now 47. Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Gee, they got together, they studied the word, they fellowship, they encourage one another, and what happened? The Lord added to their number day by day, and the church grew. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But, but that's what it says. That's what they did. They studied, they fellowshiped, they cared for one another, and the church grew. That's the formula. That's the formula. They studied the words of Jesus. They studied the words of the disciples, and then they did them, and the church grew. That's how they did it. Well, Rand, you know, our world's pretty complex today, more complex than the first century, isn't it? Okay, we can't expect to do the same things those simple people did in the first century and still impact the gospel. I mean, we've got to have other things, don't we? we I mean, look at our world. We've got uh, air conditioning. You can't have a church without air conditioning, right? Nobody will come. Nobody will hear the gospel if they don't have air conditioning. Well, those are all cultural things, okay? At the root of what the gospel is, at the root of, in a sense, church growth and spiritual growth, that's more important, spiritual growth are these things. Hearing the teachings of Christ and the apostles, living them out in our personal lives, fellowshipping and encouraging the body and the church group. That's the way it is. Well, let's look at the second question because the, the first question will be answered over the course of time as, as to how. The second question, uh, why aren't we doing it? Well, that's not a question for this congregation so much as it is a question for the church in the 21st century and perhaps even more particular the church in the developed world in the 21st century, in the developed world. See, the church is presently exploding in the undeveloped world. Okay? This country is the developed, an undeveloped world would be the continent of Africa, uh, as an example. Let me give you some, some information on that. This is from a, a site called The Tidings. It reports that Christian growth in Africa is nothing short of astonishing, that Africans represent 33% of the Christians in this world think that 33 percent of the christians in this world live in your live in africa europe by contrast is the only continent where the numbers of christians are is in decline europe as a christian geographic area is in decline and they don't see anything to change that over the course of the coming years according to the center for the study of global christianity the southern hemisphere is taking the lead in the growth figures for worshipers Africa is leading with 390 million Christians. That's three times more than just 35 years ago. Three times more than 35 years ago. Has the number of Christians in the United States tripled in the last 35 years? I don't think so. I don't think so. Already there's a small movement of African clergy moving back to Europe to re-evangelize the Europeans. Just think of that one. Years ago, they sent them down to Africa to evangelize them. Now, the, now Europe is this wasteland without the gospel, not completely, but to such an extent that the African church is sending missionaries back to Europe with the gospel of Christ. And it gets better for Africa. It is likely to grow by another 200 million believers in the next 10 years. I mean, that, that just is explosive. 
Okay? The gospel is being preached. They're taking it seriously, and it, the church is growing. The Lord is adding to their number. Philip Jenkins, who's no rela- relation to me, but he's the professor of history and religious studies at Penn State University, writes, While many Western commentators have declared that Christianity is in decline and that it must modernize its beliefs or risk being abandoned by its followers or even worse, becoming irrelevant altogether, but the opposite is really true. Christianity is on the rise and it's leading to a very different religion that does not resemble Western Christianity in its style and how it is perceived. He writes, I try to predict which countries in the world will have the largest number of Christians in 40 or 50 years. And he says the results are very interesting. Over the next 40 or 50 years, Jenkins says, the United States will be at the head just because we've got so many. The church still is growing, but it's not growing like it is in other parts of the world. Following that, in no particular order, he places the countries of Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, the Congo, Ethiopia, the Philippines, and Uganda. What's missing from that list? Anything in Europe. Anything in Europe. Britain, France, Italy. The church is not expected to grow there. Jenkins goes on to say that increasingly the Christianity of North America and Europe will become southernized. And that's southern hemisphere. Okay? Southernized. Immigration will have an immense religious impact on Europe and North America. And again, not in the way that many people see When people look at Europe, for example, I'm quoting Jenkins, they tend to see a society that is divided between a Muslim underclass and a secular or residual Christian traditional elite that operates there. He says, last year when I was researching this latest book, he went to Amsterdam. And on a Sunday morning, he was walking downtown. He could not find a single church operating in downtown Amsterdam. But as he went out into the suburbs, he saw the poor immigrants from Africa all carrying their Bibles to church. Okay? All carrying their Bibles to church. None of the elite, none of the well-educated, none of the uh, smart people, so to speak, they weren't worshiping. They had no idea who the Lord was. They were completely secularized. But it was those immigrants that had come from where the gospel was exploding in Africa. They were hungry for the things. They were on their way to church. In England, there are some of the fastest-growing churches, but they're not Anglican. They're not the Church of England. They're not the traditional churches that we would think of as European. They're churches of immigrants from Africa. And Matthew, I can't even pronounce his last name, has built the largest church in England since 1850 with a larger seating capacity than the Westminster Abbey. And he recently made this helpful suggestion to the Church of England that perhaps they would like their denomination to die gracefully so that we could have their buildings. Because the buildings in the churches in Africa, or in, in England, are for the most part pretty empty. Except when you get into these immigrant communities where the gospel is being preached. They take the gospel very seriously. The traditional church has become, in a sense, liberalized, and the view of the gospel becomes weak and becomes much more of a social issue. And there, these immigrants from Africa that that the missionaries uh, presented the gospel to, and their lives are changed, and they have immigrated into Europe, and and specifically here in England, they're on fire for the things of the Lord, and they're taking it very seriously, and the churches are exploding. Now, why is the church exploding in other parts of the world while it dies in Europe? and is growing very slowly in the United States. Where the church is growing, 
They are studying the teachings of Christ. They are counting those teachings to be true. They are are believing the inspired word of God, that it is the power of God unto salvation. They are fellowshipping together. They are living out their Christian faith, and they are declaring to those around them that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. And the Lord is adding to their number every day. Gee, that's some formula, isn't it? Well, what about consultants? And, and, and what about bringing in people from the outside and helping us understand the culture and all these things? No, they're, they're, they're taking the word of God seriously and the Lord is adding to their number day by day. They're saying that there, there is no plurality in the Christian life in the sense that there are other ways to Christ. They're not being politically correct They're saying that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. There is no alternative. And the Lord is adding to their number day by day. Gee, there's something to preaching the truth. There's something to living the truth that is powerful, that is powerful. And not only are they saying that you can't get to the Father without Christ and knowing him as your Lord and Savior, they're saying you'll never understand life. You'll never understand why you're here. All those questions that you have in life as to, you know, why am I here? What is the purpose of this life? You will never understand them if you do not begin here in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the word of God, where he tells us who he is, who we are, why we are created, and what he has for us. That is the truth. Gee, believe what Jesus says and live it. And God added their number every day. That's what it says. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is the purpose of Acts, but it is also the theme that we will find in the outline throughout the entire book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is the theme. This is the outline. The book of Acts begins with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they received power. This is how this batch of guys who basically ran away when things got tough, how they can change the world. It is not their ability. It is not their efforts. Remember, there's that passage in there that says, Ooh, when I am weak, I am Made strong by the Lord. Okay? How are how are a bunch of fishermen able to change the world? Because the Spirit comes upon them. They listen to the Spirit. The Spirit shapes all that goes on in the early church. In fact, it if you look, if you're in a pew Bible, the, the, the first page of, of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. Really, the title might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit as it worked in the apostles and in the church and in the believers. Okay? The work of the Holy Spirit as it was functioned through these individuals, as they yielded themselves, as they put aside their own desires and their own will and their own strength and took on the things of the Lord. Okay? They begin in Jerusalem, then they move out to Judea and Samaria and then to all the earth. And we see at the end of the book, um, they, they, the gospel has arrived in Rome, Um, And we also find that this is never the church, the body of Christ is never to be a body in a sense of leisure. It's never to be a body that is inactive. 
From the moment they received the Holy Spirit, the call was to go out into the world. Remember the end of Matthew? It says, go and make disciples. And where do you go? You go to all the nations. This is what you do. You don't sit back and relax. It is a body of action. 1 John chapter 1 says, I have seen it, I have heard it, now I bear witness to it. I have seen it, I have heard it, I have believed it, now I bear witness to it. This is what the believers to do, this is what the church is to do. Now, where did they make disciples? Where did they go? They went to all the nations. They were witnesses to all the nations. Now, the interesting thing is the word witnesses is the Greek word martoris. Martoris is where we get the word martyr from. It was so, they were so closely related in the first century, being a witness for Christ, and and those who were witnesses and who were persecuted, who gave up their lives for the things of the gospel and did so, in a sense, with joy. And so often they went to their death singing and praising God, that witness became associated with martyr. Not that I'm calling us to go out and be martyrs. I'm calling us to go out and be witnesses for the things the Lord has done in our lives and the things that he calls us to do. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. What kind of effective witness are we going to be? How are we going to let the Spirit work in our lives? How are we going to walk along that path that he lays out before us? Okay, these are the questions. What are we to do as this body of believers now, and how are we to do it? 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 15 and 16. This is a great, great passage of what the Lord calls us to do. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Always be ready to make a defense for the hope that lies within you. That's the hope of Jesus Christ. And how are you to do it? With gentleness and reverence. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So that those who call you into question will see by your behavior that you are living according to the things of Christ. And their accusations will bring shame upon them because your life is without question. That's the call. That's how we are to do it. That is how we are to live in this world. All we need now is the power to do it. And that is the Holy Spirit. And the power to do, what's Ephesians say? Beyond anything we can dream or imagine. That's what the Lord will do. Well, the Holy Spirit dominates the book of Acts. Go back to Acts chapter 1. Again and again, we see the name of the Holy Spirit 60 times. The word Spirit is used with a capital S. Another 40 times, the, the name Holy Spirit is used in the book. It revolves around the Spirit. If you put all those things together, you find God's pattern for everything in the church is moved and determined by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit chooses and appoints the ministers of the early church. The Holy Spirit regenerates, it baptizes, it it fills, it sanctifies, it does all these things, it directs and controls. So as I said, it's really a book about the Holy Spirit and how it works in the Acts of the Apostles. So it's the Holy Spirit working through 
the early church. Where the gospel goes, and particularly in John, we have been studying it. Christ reveals that in, in his flesh, he reveals these things to us. And in Acts, Christ is revealed in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, it would be easy to get too focused on the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he works and lives within us. That, that's, that's, in a sense, his job. And he empowers the church. But understand, the Spirit always points to whom? The Christ. Okay? We don't worship the Holy Spirit. We worship the Heavenly Father and his Son and the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus Christ. So as he comes and works within the church and leads and guides us, at the same time he is saying, you know, Jesus Christ. And at the same time, Jesus Christ says, my will is to do what? The will of the Father who sent me. Okay. So as we look through this, the Spirit always points to Christ. The Spirit tells us about Jesus Christ. And the main theme of all the sermons that are listed in, in, in Acts. And there are sermons by Peter and sermons by Paul and a sermon by Stephen. That The sermons in Acts take up 25% of the book of Acts. Okay? And they, the theme of every sermon is the resurrected Christ. Okay? It's not the Holy Spirit, it's the resurrected Christ. The resurrection was so real and so powerful in the early church that that's what they preached on. And the resurrection really was the confirming sign of the authority and the authenticity of Jesus Christ. So how do we know that Jesus Christ came? How do we know he was the Messiah? How do we know he was the one we waited for? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the confirming sign. Well, the book of Acts is not like Romans or Galatians, which are mostly theology. The book of Acts is mostly history rather than theology. The book of Acts is more of a history book than it is a theology book. If you take the book of Acts and you, you take the pages, you can lay in here the epistles of Paul because Acts will be the underlying history and then you lay, lay in there uh, chronologically where Paul is. Now, it doesn't, Luke doesn't, doesn't give any evidence he knows what Paul is writing. He just gives evidence that he knows where Paul is going on his missionary journeys. Much like in the Old Testament, you have the historic books of uh, Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, and then you can lay the history of Israel in on top of those books. The same thing is true for Acts. You lay the history of the New Testament up until about... 64 AD in on top of Acts okay so it undergirds it so as we go through Acts we'll go over to Philippians and see what's going on at the time that they listed here in Acts or we'll go to Ephesus and see what Paul is doing there at that time as I hinted Acts was written somewhere about 62 63 64 AD toward the end of Paul's first imprisonment in Rome now why are these things important uh, to know the date well, it's important to understand the date to, to understand the context of what it is in. The book of Acts concludes when Paul is in his first imprisonment and the church and the spread of the gospel is still pretty much accepted within the Roman Empire. It's not until Nero comes in, uh, 64, 65, and begins his persecution because he needs a scapegoat or a fall guy for his craziness and he picks Christians. And none of that is mentioned here in Acts. There's no persecution mentioned at the end. So we think that Luke stops writing 
just before the persecution begins. Okay, just before the persecution begins. Almost all of the scholars agree. Luke wrote it. Luke has wrote probably 30% of the New Testament with his gospel in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke from the, the book of Colossians is listed as the physician, Luke the physician. A lot of his terminology is physician-oriented. A lot of the ways he looks at the world, looks at it from the way a physician would look at it, and he describes things in that way. Luke is not mentioned very often in the New Testament, only in Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. But he was a trusted traveler with Paul. He was somebody that was, in a sense, um, he was not, a, not on the front line, but uh, Paul would be on the front line, but Luke's right behind him in that type of, uh, of illustration. Okay? We don't know much else about him other than that. He was a companion of Paul. Now, go to uh, Acts chapter 1, first verse. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom. Theophilus uh, apparently is the person that Luke writes both his gospel and the book of Acts 2. Theophilus is... um, Historically speaking, we found a Theophilus in the uh, second century church, uh, a wealthy and influential individual, is, is mentioned in the history books by the name of Theophilus. Uh, the guess is that he became a believer, and Luke is writing these things to him to show him and to help him grow in a deeper knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what he has called us to do. So he writes the gospel this way, and then he comes to the book of Acts that he might describe the growth of the church and how we are to live because of what the Lord has done in our lives. So Luke was a close friend of Paul's, traveling companion. He had an understanding of Roman laws and customs. He had a great understanding of geography. We'll see all these things as we work through the book. No doubt that he had interviews with people who had first-person experiences with Paul and and with his work in these places because people are are mentioned. Uh, Luke often uses the pronouns of we and they so that he was actually part of the ministry that he is writing about. So this is just simply an introduction to get us going into the book of Acts. How did they do it? Why aren't we doing it? Those questions will be answered more and more as we dig into what the Lord calls us to do. What is the formula for being a successful church for the Lord? Uh, Hold to his teachings, do his teachings, encourage one another, fellowship with one another. And the Lord added to their day, to their number each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we've just, just scratched the surface of the book of Acts. But how different are we than than the group that Jesus dealt with? We're weak, we're fickle. Now we as believers already have the power of the Spirit. They were just about to receive it, just about to begin to change the world, to follow your call. Here are your instructions. You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. 
You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samarita, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Lord, we have received the power of the Spirit. As believers, the Spirit lives within us. The question really for us today is, will we be the witnesses? Will we yield our will and cling to yours? Will we take seriously the teachings of your gospel to do those things, to live out the things of Christ, that you might be glorified, that the things of Christ might be proclaimed, that the world in which you have placed us, whether that be our house, our neighborhood, our community, our city, that it might be changed for the things of Christ. That whoever you allow into our lives, that those doors might be open, that we might willingly and compassionately, with, with a, a yielded heart to the things of Christ, be ready to give a response for the grace and the hope that lies within. Be ready to share the things of Christ. Lord, teach us these things as we dig into your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.